Nahum chapter 2, those videos do such a good job of um, giving an overview of the book, better than we could ever do. Um, So hopefully you enjoy those videos. Um, So Nahum chapter 2 this morning. If you remember from the video, it is all about destruction. He said in chapter 2, it is the people assembling, it is the people attacking, it is the people winning, and ultimately plundering the city of Nineveh. This is a difficult text to deal with because we have a destruction of a whole entire city. But we also have Judah, the people of God, rejoicing over the fact that all of these people are getting annihilated. So what I want us to see this morning is how do we balance the idea of us rejoicing over our enemies suffering and ultimately dying, but also God's judgment over those that ultimately deserve it. It's a difficult thing to handle because what we're going to see, if you remember from last week, is that we learned all about who God was. We learned about that God is slow to anger. So how is God slow to anger if he then enacts judgment on the city of Nineveh? So I want us to deal with this passage carefully, as God's judgment is something that we take and should take very seriously. So as we look this morning, Nahum chapter 2, let me pray for us, and we're going to get right into the passage this morning. God, we're thankful for our time together this morning. We're thankful for the opportunity to study your word, to worship you, to proclaim who you are, that you are a just God, that you're a God that saves, that you offer salvation to all who call upon your name. And that's what we're here to celebrate this morning. In a gloomy text, we're here to celebrate the goodness of who you are. That when it says that you are a just God, that you are slow to anger, that you are abounding in steadfast love, that's who you are. So we celebrate that this morning. We worship you and who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think, firstly, we need to ask a question. If we're going to sit here and say, wait, I thought God was slow to anger. How is he enacting this vicious attack on Nineveh? I think we need to ask the question, wait, what's happening? We have to hit the pause button here and figure out what God is doing in human history. If you remember from last week, we learned all about who God was. That his vengeance looks different than our vengeance. His justice looks different than our definition of justice. Who God is looks different than who we think God is. And ultimately, it culminated in saying that God is slow to anger. However, as we flip to chapter 2, we have almost 13 verses of God just destroying this city. So wait, I thought God was slow to anger. I think in order for us to understand what is happening in Nahum 2, it's important for us to flip back in our Bibles to the book of Jonah. Because Nineveh, Jonah dealt with Nineveh and God dealt with Nineveh about 170 years before this story. And it's important that we understand this story because we have to have good handles on this passage in order to apply it, but also to think rightly about God. Because if we're not careful... We don't have poor handling. We we then enact bad application and then bad theology about who God is. 
So it's important that we understand the background of what's happening. If you're familiar with the the story of Jonah, Jonah is a prophet called by God to go to the city of Nineveh, his arch nemesis. And he's like, I do not want to go to Nineveh. These are wicked, wicked people. They will kill me. They will destroy me. I don't want to even look at them. I don't even want to think about them. So he flees and he goes the opposite way of the city. And what happens? A storm happens. He's on the boat. A wild storm happens. They end up throwing Jonah overboard. God sends this fish to swallow him up in the belly of the whale. God talks to him and says, you are going to Nineveh. After three days, Jonah gets spit out by the fish on the land, and he makes his way to Nineveh. As he gets to Nineveh, he then walks three days straight, proclaiming that destruction is coming and that that they need to repent of their sins. Nineveh repents. Estimated roughly 120,000 people in this city, they turn from their wickedness. If you watch the Veggie Tales, they're slapping people with fishes. They no longer (laughs) slap people with fishes. They repent of their sins. Jonah, the prophet of God, called by God, wasn't happy that the people repented. Do you see what happened? Jonah was perfectly fine preaching the story of repentance as long as the people of Nineveh didn't repent. Because it's perfectly fine to preach the gospel, but you cannot want the person to be saved. And that's what he was doing. So the people repent, and he's like, okay, God, what in the world was that about? I did what you said. They shouldn't have repented. They don't deserve the grace that you have given me. And he laments, and he cries out to God, and he says, just take my life. I'm just, I'm done dealing with them. God tells him, he says, don't you understand? My grace, my mercy, I've saved these people from the destruction that is coming over their land. I've saved them. And Jonah, we don't really see his response. The story just ends with a man of God, a prophet, being bitter over people being saved. The city of Nineveh is saved. Now, as we fast forward about 170 years, Nineveh has forgotten all about God. They've forgotten the relief that they were given from their punishment. Nineveh's rejected God. The story of Jonah is no longer something that they lived. It's now just a story in their history books that they remember their ancestors doing. It's nowhere near to them. So as we look at Nahum 2 now, as we approach our text, it's no longer that God is slow to anger. Or he is, sorry. He is slow to anger. Let's make sure we get that one right. God is slow to anger. It's been 170 years since he relented on his destruction and the people have completely forgotten all about him. And we know that God is a just God and he must act on those that are turned against him. When we think about Scripture, we often call the whole storyline of Scripture God's redemptive plan. Have you ever heard that? It's called God's redemptive plan. When we think about this, it means that from Genesis to Revelation is God's ordained plan for human history, his plan for us from Genesis to Revelation, all culminating in Jesus. 
When we think about that, we love to stick to the part of God's redemptive plan of him saving us. And we should. That is glorious news. That's the best news that we could ever talk about for the rest of our time, is that God saves his people. For those who call on Jesus, they will be saved. But as we progress through the storyline of Scripture, we also know that there's another part, and that's the judgment of God, that there are those that he saves and there are those that he casts down judgment on. But when we talk about the judgment of God, we like to just kind of turn away. We're like, let's not talk about it. Let's just keep to the good news, right? But if it's a part of God's story, we have to talk about it. We can't ignore it. We can't avoid it. We have God's saving power, but also the destruction of people. And that's what, that's what is happening today. We affirm both the salvation and the judgment coming from God. We see in verse 1, of Nahum chapter 2, that the scatterer has come up against you. Talking to the city of Nineveh, this is God and his army attacking the city. The scatterer, being God, has come. In verses 3 through 4, we see that the army is moving in quickly. This will be swift. It won't be expected. But once the army is here, there's nothing Nineveh can do about it. God's army is being enacted to take out the city of Nineveh. It'll be powerful. It'll be quick. A few years ago, I was at a Chiefs game. It was a night game, and there was a a rumor of a flyover happening. And we were pretty excited about that. We were sitting in the back of the end zone. The national anthem started, and over the anthem and the, the noise of the crowd, you could hear this rumbling starting to happen. And in the back of the end zone, you knew it was behind you. You have the the seats above you, so you can't just turn around and look. And plus, it's dark outside, so you wouldn't see anything anyway. But you hear this rumbling, and it starts to get just a little bit louder, and a little bit louder, and a little bit louder. And before you know it, there's a stealth bomber flying over the top of you. It's powerful, it's loud, and it's incredible to see. There's nothing you could do to stop that thing. When it's in motion, it's in motion and it's going. The same thing is true about God's army. The people of Nineveh could hear it coming. They could hear the chariots in verses 3 and 4 being assembled. It says the chariots come with flashing metal on the day that he musters them. This is God. He's coming with power. It's not just one chariot. You can hear it coming, and then it's here, and there's nothing we can do about it. The chariot is coming. It says in verse 6 that the river gates are open, and the palace melts away. The tide is turned. The word for melt here also means dismay. It means the city is is in ruin. The palace melts away. The palace is no more. It's gone. Nineveh prided themselves on their power and their authority, and it's all falling apart. Nineveh is like a pool, verse 8, whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. The mighty rivers of Nineveh run dry. God is taking everything that they were prideful about, everything that they were arrogant about, and he's saying it's no more. 
All flee and no one turns back. Nineveh's enemies can now plunder, in verse 9, the silver and the gold that they, Nineveh has plundered from other people. So there's a reversal here. The people of God have had all their stuff plundered, taken away from them, and now God says, you now go into Nineveh and plunder what was plundered from you. There is no end of the treasure or the things of wealth of all the precious things. Her riches are boundless because the city itself has once plundered the things of others. God's destruction has come upon the city. No one's turning back. No one is safe in the city. The water has run dry. We have the benefit of living as New Testament believers, which means that we have seen the ultimate judgment poured out. While this seems bad, we have the news that the ultimate judgment has been poured out. It's not poured out on the city of Nineveh. It's poured out on Jesus. And it's poured out for you, and it's poured out for me. Because as much as we don't like to admit it, we are like this city. That if we had a choice, God wouldn't, or we wouldn't go to God. We would choose to plunder the things that please us. So as we stand confused, looking at this difficult text of God dealing out his judgment on us, we must remember and fix our gaze on the triumphant cross, the ultimate judgment poured out for you and for me. So as we look at the judgment of God on the city, we remember the cross because that's the ultimate judgment that saved us because in reality, we deserve this destruction. We ask the question, wait, what is happening here? How is this good news? The people of Judah are now rejoicing because their enemy is being taken out. What do we do with this plan? And maybe for you today, it seems like this destruction is happening in your life. That this is real life for you. That your life feels like God is enacting his judgment on you. So what do we do with this? I think our second point is going to clarify that. And that is that we don't forget God's plan. We ask the question, wait, what's happening? In that moment that we ask that question, we say, don't forget God's plan. Don't forget it. We talked about how God offers both salvation and judgment. We can't forget that. God's plan is important. As we examine these last few verses, we have to understand from a 30,000 foot view of what God is doing. We're going to be looking at verses 2 and then verse 2 and also verses 10 through 13. The chaos happening in this book in this chapter don't happen by chance it's not uh, it's not catching God off guard it's happening by God's plan the reason that all of this has happened is because the redemptive plan that he's set in motion if you look at verse 2 it says that God is restoring the majesty of Jacob and the majesty of Israel for plunders have plundered them and ruined their branches. 
The Lord is restoring the house of Jacob. So often we forget that God is a covenant God. That he remembers the covenants that he's established with his people. The reference to Jacob here makes one thing very clear. That God has remembered his people. In the midst of your difficulty, in the midst of your pain, God cries out to you and he says, I remember. I love you. I've called you to this. I will not forget you. It's Jacob who, after wrestling with God, is blessed with the name Israel, if you remember from the book of Genesis. And God remembers this, the same blessing of presence and provision and peace that he lavished upon Jacob is the same blessing that he lavishes upon Israel. And God says that he's restoring it. He says he's restoring the majesty It's a majestic thing to be chosen and to be blessed by God. And that's what he's doing to his people. Do you see the attention that God pays to the suffering and to the disgrace of his people? We see at the end of verse 2 that they have been plundered and their branches have been ruined. He knows that they have been destroyed. He knows that they have had taken things, that things have been taken away from them. He knows their branches have been ruined. And this is a God who cares. This is a God who, act, who acts decisively in his care. This is a God capable about bringing salvation through judgment. And maybe that's what he wants to do in your life today. He wants to restore you. He wants to renew you. He wants to bring you back closer to himself. Maybe that's what he wants to do with you. The people of Nineveh can rejoice over their physical salvation over the people of Nineveh being ruined. They can rejoice that they no no longer have to worry about their number one enemy. And the reality is today that we don't have to just rejoice over physical salvation. We get to rejoice over spiritual salvation. That we have a Savior that has been promised from the Old Testament that has come and has died for us on the cross. There will always be an enemy. There always will be. As long as we're here on earth, there will always be an enemy and opposition. The people of Judah were rejoicing because Nineveh has been destroyed. Their physical restraint has now been released. But what they don't, rem- or what they don't know at the time is that in a few short years, the city of Babylon is coming. And they're going to be just as mighty as the people of Assyria. See, there's always going to be opposition coming our way. Same way with us. While opposition may be around us, we can rest in the reality that God is for us. And if God is for us, then who can stand against us? While opposition may be strong, we have a Savior that's stronger. And he's restoring people back to himself. This is God's plan for his people. So while the city may be in ruin, God's restoring his people. When I was a kid, I always wanted to build something. I thought it would be a really good idea. I thought I could make something incredible. 
my dad was pretty good with uh, working with his hands, so I found these uh, old pieces of wood, just pieces of wood that nobody really wanted, and I was like, I want to make something with this wood. So I came to my dad, and I said, what can I make with this wood? And he's like, whatever you want. So I looked at him. I said, I want to make a box. I want to put all my secrets in this box. I want to put everything that I don't want people to know directly in this box. This is my box. I want to latch on it, keep a key. Only I have the key. I want to make a box. The reality is that I only put about a two-inch pocket knife in that box, and that's the only thing I could think of. But as I built this box, I was so proud that I took an old piece of wood and made a box out of it. If you saw this box, it looked absolutely terrible. It was falling apart. Nails were coming out of it. You would cut yourself on it. You'd get splinters. It was a terrible, terrible thing that I built. I tried to restore an old piece of wood and bring it out and put new life into it. The reality is I couldn't do it. I was just a little boy trying to work with a small piece of wood to make something beautiful, and I couldn't figure it out. I ended up having to throw that box away. It was too dangerous. I had to get your tet- tetanus shot so often so you didn't, didn't get sick. The truth is that when we think about God restoring his people, he's not going to restore us like I tried to restore that box. He's not going to bring us like halfway to restoration. He's not going to bring us to restoration. We've got nails sticking out and we're hurting people and we're doing all these things that we shouldn't. When God restores his people, he restores them fully. When he looks at the broken pieces of our lives, he restores us back to completion, to where we're whole again. That's what God wants to do with us. That he wants to restore us completely. He's not just going to restore us and then be like, I just can't do it anymore. Matt's just not worth it. He's never going to get to that point. God wants to restore us fully. And when we are restored fully to God, that's when we can live in God's plan. That's when it makes sense. So when we ask God, what are you doing? When we're living within the will of God, it'll make sense. He restores his people completely. But what about those that are against God? As we talked about earlier, we have God's plan, right? This is his salvation in verse 2, that he's restoring his people. What about those that have turned against him? We see that in verses 10 through 13. Seth and Annie read this morning. We see in verses 10 through 13 that they, the city of Nineveh, will be removed. Verses 11 and 12, it talks a lot about lions. This is, their, this is their lion's den, the city. That's what they were prideful about. The city of Nineveh and Assyria um, were referenced to as acting like lions. They would capture their enemies just like a lion would, and they would take them back to the city, and their city was basically their lion's den, that they were proud of the people and the things that they captured. What God is saying here in this passage is that he's removing the lion's den, What they were most prideful about, what they were most um, satisfied with, is now being removed. Verse 11, he's asking a rhetorical question here. Essentially, he's asking, where is the mighty Nineveh now? 
When God moves, God moves powerfully. The lion's den is this metaphor for Nineveh. The people of city could enjoy their splendor of wickedness and safety. And God's saying, no more. No more. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions? The wickedness of Nineveh is over and it's provided a hope for Jerusalem. God has enacted his judgment on the people of Nineveh. He says in verse 13, Behold, I am against you. What a terrifying thing from our Savior when he calls out to the city of Nineveh and he says, I am against you. This is the judgment of God. In the same way that God won't restore his people halfway, he won't enact his judgment halfway. The God that we worship, the God that we serve, isn't a halfway God. He acts fully through his plan. The Lord himself delivered the people of Judah through the destruction of Nineveh. And through these verses, the Lord showed himself to be the Lord of the universe that he is in control of all things, that he has a plan for all things, that he will enact his salvation on his people, but also enact judgment of those that are against him. That he's working through human history to accomplish his plan for the world. The reality is, is that God's people that have called on the name of the Lord weren't fully saved because of their physical salvation. That it's God himself who came in human flesh. That he would come personally to deliver his people. Some 600 years after this text. That he's delivering his people by paying the price for our sins. And it's through this act of judgment, God's wrath being poured out on Jesus on the cross, that we have salvation. That our salvation is secure. That it's final. That it's complete. And it's the reason that when we ask the question, wait, what's happening here? That we remember God's plan. That we set our gaze on the cross, not at the destruction around us. Not of God, what are you doing? But as we fix our gaze on the cross the puzzle pieces begin to align. Things begin to make sense. And as Christians, if you have accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, we stand righteous only because Christ has bore the full weight of God's judgment upon the cross. And this should cause us to tremble. Not in fear of being condemned, but in awe and gratitude of the terrible power and the awesome love of God interconnecting for us. The wrath of God satisfied, bringing about salvation for his people. What is God doing? He's fulfilling his plan for his people, the redemptive plan of God. So this morning, I want to encourage you to set your gaze on Jesus. To fix your eyes on him. As the destruction around you seems like it wants to draw all of your attention. While your world may seem confused, while your world may seem like it doesn't make sense, Jesus 
always makes sense. He's the one who paid our judgment that we deserve on the cross. And in that, we look to him, we worship him, we praise him. And maybe for the first time today, you've realized that you have never said yes to Jesus. That what he has done for you on the cross, you've never experienced it. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you believe what Jesus has done on the cross, you will be saved. Will you say yes to Jesus today? And if you have, will you commit your life to Jesus? Continue to follow him, to set your gaze on the cross. Let's pray.